Hello and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. If you've never given Oral Valley Catholic a like, now is a good time to hit the like button. Help spread this podcast. Also, it should be a spiritual work of mercy. And friends, this is Advent. We're going to talk about especially the corporal works of mercy uh, and penance because this week we're going to talk about John the Baptist uh, and his connection to ancient Israel. So stay tuned. John the Baptist can, and his importance can't be underrated in the gospel. He's a significant part of all four gospels. In fact, some of Jesus's, many of Jesus's disciples perhaps, were disciples of John the Baptist. Because clearly John the Baptist saw himself as preparing the way for a much more important figure than himself. And we know that to be the Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. But why is that plausible in uh, a, a bigger historical sense? And so in Oral Valley Catholic, this week we're going to talk about John the Baptist. You know, in our Catholic tradition, uh, he's very important in art. The two most painted figures through the Middle Ages were probably our Blessed Lady, number one, and John the Baptist, number two, both family members of the Lord. Um, and John the Baptist's call in the gospel uh, for the second Sunday of Advent is a call to repentance. It's why every time we go to Mass, we start out with a penitential rite. And whenever we do that, you hear the echoes of John the Baptist in our church. He's had a powerful influence on uh, Western, uh, Western culture, and especially on Catholicism. And so if you think of John the Baptist and the Lord, you think of the, ascet the ascetical and the festive. That's not normally, I think, the most common thing that would uh, come to mind first. But just think of it in terms of how the liturgical, liturgical year is organized. We have these penitential seasons like Advent and Lent. Advent is considered like a mini Lent. And followed by festive seasons, Christmas uh, and Easter. And so especially at this time of year in Lent, I mean in Advent, we remember that it starts out with the preaching of John the Baptist recounted in the second Sunday of Advent. And remember the Christmas uh, season ends with the baptism of the Lord by John the Baptist. And Jesus refers to it in the gospel, uh, this understanding of the ascetical and the festive side by side, uh, because he's criticized as always by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And so although this part of the gospel is not in um, this week's readings, I will read to you the little pericope from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verses 33 to 35. And here's what Jesus says. For John the Baptist came, neither eating food nor drinking wine, and you said, he's possessed by a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and you said, look, he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is vindicated by all of her children. And what I want to suggest to you is, that it is a very important part of our spiritual lives, that we can fast where we don't drink, eat food or drink wine, 
But we also have times when we feast, when we uh, eat and drink wine, eat bread, my gosh. Um, And so when you think of John the Baptist and Jesus, think about how our pattern in the liturgical years of fasting and feasting is so important. So who was John the Baptist in like a, a broad sense? You know, in his own time, until he was killed by Herod, uh, he was more popular than Jesus. Um, it says in the Gospels that he dressed in skins, he ate locusts and honey, things that were available in the wild. Uh, he lived this very stark and prophetic life. Um, he uh, called people to repentance. Uh, and when you think of John the Baptist, that's what you're thinking of. He is baptizing uh, right across the river from uh, Jericho on one of the main trade routes. And so he would get people from Galilee who would travel on the east side of the Jordan River in order to avoid walking through Samaria. He'd get people coming from the east who were going to trade in Israel. And so he was like a guy at the side of this busy road uh, calling people to repentance. It's the place where Israel, uh, led by Joshua, uh, enters into the promised land. And so the place where he's baptizing uh, is the place where Moses died, uh, looking across into the promised land, a place he would never get to. Uh, there's something there about how Israel enters into the promised land victorious, but then it all falls apart. Because the major way of thinking about the gospel is it's about a new exodus. Jesus is a new Moses. It's one of the images uh, presented of Jesus in the gospel, especially at the end of Matthew's gospel, where we'll be drawing on Matthew's gospel a lot this year where uh, he, before he ascends to heaven, the last thing he says when he sends the church out, the apostles, and he completes the mission of John the Baptist, because the Gospel of Matthew kind of starts with John the Baptist, but it also ends with Jesus telling the church to baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the Gospel completes with a fuller sense of baptism than the baptism of John the Baptist. And so to see the framing uh, stories about the gospel of Matthew is that there are about two kinds of baptisms, about repentance of sin and then baptism into the triune God's uh, vital life. Um, So think about that as we uh, spend a little time uh, contemplating and speculating about John the Baptist and how he fits in to the people of Israel. And we'll go there now. That flows by the throne of God. And so in this second part of this episode of Oro Valley Catholic, I want to go back to a book I talked about last week by Dr. John Bergsma called Jesus and the Dead Sea Scrolls. And one of the most uh, interesting parts of the book were the parallels between the life of John the Baptist as it's recounted in the four Gospels and the people uh, of Qumran, who appears to have been an all-male Jewish monastic community where celibacy was practiced, females were not part of the community, 
But as I go through the different descriptions of John the Baptist, what Dr. Bergsman did was compare them to the community rule in various documents found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls um, to give John the Baptist this sense that he actually fits into this larger community in a sense, although he may well have been um, kicked out of that community uh, because he took the preaching of the Essenes to its logical end. And I will get to that in a minute. But here's um, basically uh, what Dr. Bergsma said about John the Baptist. And I hope you find this interesting. The first thing he points out is that in uh, John the Baptist's preaching in the four Gospels, it always starts out with him describing himself as um, a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. I think if you remember anything about John the Baptist, it's that quote from Isaiah 11. And that quote was very important to the um, monastic community of uh, Qumran. Now, as I'll point out, Qumran is about a half day's walk where, from where John the Baptist was baptizing. So he didn't really go very far if he was in a scene. Um, but I'll spend a little time at the beginning in the first reading for the second Sunday of Advent because of its importance to John's preaching, but also to the Essene community. And so there's really like four parts to that first reading from Isaiah. And the first part is a voice crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. And it's in, historically for Isaiah, it's the people in exile and baptism being brought back to the promised land. God keeps his promises. But the Essenes who founded Qumran probably saw it differently. They saw it as the pathway of the Messiah who would return to Israel crossing the Jordan River. The reason they built Qumran on the Jordan River just south of Jericho and just north of En Gedi is because they wanted to be there when the Messiah passed through. And what they expected from the Messiah is what Isaiah 11 says. So think of these four parts to Isaiah 11, and you'll get the messianic hopes of the Essenes and of John the Baptist. The first part is make straight the way of the Lord. And then here's the second part. And the spirit of the Lord to rest upon him, referring to the Messiah, a spirit of wisdom and of understanding, a spirit of counsel and of strength, a spirit of knowledge and of fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. Not by appearance shall he judge, nor by hearsay shall he decide. But he shall judge with the poor with justice and decide right for the lands afflicted. He shall strike the ruthless with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Justice shall be a bound around his waist, and faithfulness a belt upon his hips. You know how this comes into the New Testament? St. Paul quotes from Isaiah 11, because it's such an important uh, messianic um, reference. Because if you go through that passage and you compare it to Paul, it's the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit that this Messiah is filled with the Holy Spirit. He'll be wise, he'll be good counsel, he'll be just, um, he'll be pious, he'll uh, have reverence for the Lord. 
Um, and it'll go on from there. But that the Messiah is, uh, is, is described as a person full of the Spirit. And so when you read especially the Gospel of Matthew, all the Gospels, Jesus is always in community with, with the Spirit. Strongest in Luke, but referred to in all the Gospels. Then the third part of Isaiah 11, the first reading, is eschatological. The eschatology is about the end of time. Apocalyptic is a re re revelation of what happens after the end of this world. And so to say something is eschatological is that it has something to do with the end of time. To say something is apocalypsis, uh, which is a Greek word for revelation, it means something you couldn't know is revealed to you, uh, and you couldn't know it unless God told you. And so this presupposes this third part that the end has come, and then the revelation. Then the wolf shall be the guest of the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the young shall browse together with a little child to guide them. The cow and bear shall be neighbors. Together their young shall rest. The lion shall eat hay like the ox. The baby shall play by the cobra's den, and the child lay his hand on the adder's lair. Violence is over um, when, when the new world comes. We may, this world may end in violence, but it prepares its way for a completely different kind of reality. And that leads to the fourth part of Isaiah 11. And this is probably why John the Baptist left the Essenes. So in Isaiah, at the very end of the reading, it says, on that day, the root of Jesse set up as a signal for the nations, the Gentiles shall seek out, for his dwelling shall be glorious. So the reading from Isaiah 11 talks about the stump of Jesse, and then uh, in the end times, when the Gentiles shall seek it out, it's the root of Jesse will be a signal for the nations. Jesse, if you remember, is King, Dave, uh, King David's father. And so Jesse is this bridge character in the Old Testament, pointing to everything that goes before him, back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Noah, and Adam. Then David is this messianic hope, the hope of this king and leader. Uh, but he was for just the people of Israel. Isaiah 11 says that the Gentiles will come to Israel uh, and that this root of Jesse, this stump of Jesse, and this sprout that comes up from the stump of Jesse will be a signal. So remember that the Davidic uh, kingship is destroyed by the Babylonians. The last Davidic king is, I think, Zechariah. And before the Babylonians gouge his eyes out, they slay each of his sons right in front of him. So he sees the end of the Davidic line. And so imagine a dynastic tree that's been cut off and dead, and the tree's been burned. And then suddenly this spruit shoot comes out. That's the Messiah. Um, life from death, uh, resurrection uh, from uh, the end of a Davidic uh, line. And who is that person? Well, the reason that Matthew at Christmas, his genealogy, as the genealogy of Jesus, it shows that he is the sprout from the root of Jesse. And so this Isaiah 11 is what John the Baptist is talking about, about the more powerful person coming behind me, this shoot from the stump 
of Jesse. And why I said, and this is from Dr. Bergsman's book, is the Essenes were like all into Isaiah 11, except that last part about the Gentiles. Because the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, they had no time for the Gentiles. Jesus, they make a point in the gospel, it came to keep God's promises to the Jews. But you know what he does every time he meets a Gentile? He's a signal for them. The Syrophoenician woman. He loves Roman soldiers, the centurions. Uh, and, he, and the whole church goes out to the Gentiles, obviously. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of this fourth part. Bergsma suspects that John the Baptist was raised by the Essenes because there's a part um, in the gospel where it says Elizabeth, that John grew up in the wilderness. And he thinks maybe Zechariah and Elizabeth, John's, chill, John's parents, entrusted him to the Essenes for education because the Essenes seem to be composed almost exclusively of priests uh, from the line of Zadok that were alienated from the Sadducee party that ran the temple. So you're a priest at the Sadducees who have no strong claim to the priesthood, uh, have just pushed to the side so they can take over the temple. It's why the Essenes are very critical of the temple. Uh, it's God's holy place. Real sacrifice happens there. But the priesthood is a corrupt priesthood. That's why uh, in um, Luke, remember that Luke makes a point that um, Zechariah is a priest and that John is from a priestly family that Mary is somehow related into a priestly family because Jesus will fulfill what the Essenes and all the rest of Israel expects, that he'll battle and he'll restore true worship. He battles with the true enemies of Israel. Uh, that's the powers of evil. Um, and he is a true priest because he makes intercession for all people. And so then we turn to the gospel and this is how the gospel uh, describes John the Baptist. John the Baptist appeared preaching in the desert of Judea. This is from Matthew, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was of him that the prophet Isaiah had spoken when he said, A voice of one crying out in the desert, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight his paths. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. And at that time, Jerusalem, all Judea, and the whole region around the Jordan were going out to him, were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they acknowledged their sins. And so let's go through Dr. Bergsman as he points out all the connections between John and Baptist and the Essenes because it is how Jesus pulls together people from a Pharisaic tradition, St. Paul, people from priestly traditions, John the Baptist, uh, people from the Essenes. He seems to reach out to all the shattered remnants of, uh, of the nation of Israel, which is so fractured. So I've said it before, uh, where John is baptizing, it's about a half day's walk from Qumran, uh, just a few miles. Um, they, the Essenes baptized, they had waterworks in their in their uh, monastic environment where they would bathe frequently uh, 
as a symbol of uh, cleansing themselves from sin. There's a document in the uh, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls, which are, is probably the library from Qumran. They were hidden in caves, probably because the Romans were coming to destroy uh, Qumran and then Masada, which is directly south of Qumran. But in the community rule, it says, it talks about how important Isaiah is and this, uh, this voice crying in the wilderness because the Essenes saw themselves as that voice. John the Baptist uh, takes that and he uses that as his descriptor, which would be consistent if he was educated by the Essenes. Uh, the community rule says, when such men as these come to be in Israel conforming to these doctor, doctrines, they shall separate from the session of perverse men, go to the wilderness, that is, join the Essenes, and there to prepare the way of truth, as it is written in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That's a direct quote in English out of the community uh, rule. And so the Essenes also expected not just baptism in the water, but the, that the Messiah would baptize in the Holy Spirit and fire. And so John probably gets this from a scene teaching. And then the diet, there's something uh, in the rule that when you leave the uh, scenes, you still have your commitments to them and you can't eat unclean food. You can only eat things found in nature. So for John to live on uh, locusts, because in the Essene rule, there's actually a recipe for preparing locusts. You have to boil them. And the great uh, uh, Jewish historian from that same period of time, Josephus, writes about staying with the Essenes and uh, a man named Banus who had left the community. And how he describes Banus is the same way that the scriptures describe John the Baptist clothed in animal skins, and eating locusts. Um, and so in Luke Luke 1, um, this is the part where Dr. Bergsmith thinks that Elizabeth and Zechariah, John's the Baptist's parents, entrusted them as a kids to the Essene because it says in Luke 1, verse 80, and the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness till the day of his manifestation to Israel. That's how John is described in the Gospel of Luke. So a little kid out wandering in the desert by himself. So here's what Bergsma thinks. Uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth were pretty old uh, and probably uh, sent John away to be educated. They may have died when, uh, when, that, when he was sent away because they're not mentioned again in any of the Gospels except for you know the fact that they were very old. And so he thinks that the Essenes because it says so in their rule, uh, and Josephus says it about them, that though they weren't married, they would accept children and educate them and bring them up as a scenes. It's kind of like the old Catholic practice of sending kids away to minor seminary, uh, like we had Regina Clary here in Tucson that was basically a high school. I thought about going to it, but at the end I decided I'd better have some uh, uh, exposure to, to uh, women, which was a good instinct, and so I went to South Point instead. But that the idea of sending their kids away to these all-male environments to be educated, this is not unusual, and it's actually it's echoed in the Catholic community. And finally, Dr. Bergsma points out that the Essenes were the foes of the Pharisees. Remember the Pharisees 
have the oral law, and this is why Jesus clashes with them. They take this Mosaic law, and they try to interpret it in unique ways because it's kind of just outdated. Uh, The world has changed in the 1,500 years since Moses gave the law. And so the Pharisees are trying to say, yeah, but you could live it like this. It's what I'd said about when the temple was destroyed. Uh, How do you practice the, the religion of the book that requires animal sacrifice and in your religion in this temple on uh, Mount Zion, where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is now. How is it that that is just stops in the first century and it doesn't maim your religion? Uh, this is a problem of Judaism. It, Christianity says that worship and sacrifice is transferred uh, to the true temple, which is Jesus' risen body. That's how Catholics, which is a form of Judaism coming out of the the first century, uh, completes, we would say, the religion of the people of Israel, but doesn't supersede the covenant. God always keeps his promises. But the Essenes refer in their documentation of the Pharisees as shoddy wall builders, because this idea of building this oral law, this rabbinic man-made interpretation around Torah, um, it's just not strong enough for the Essenes, so they're very critical of, of the Pharisees. And the Sadducees are, in their uh, estimation, corrupt priests. And so if you noticed in this preaching from um, John the Baptist, who is he fighting with? Well, if you do the reading at the bottom, at the very end, the gospel ends. When he, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the same people the Essenes fight with. Coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce good fruit as the evidence of your repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God can raise up children to Abraham from these stones. The Essenes said the same thing. So Dr. Bergsman makes a pretty strong case that John's roots are in the Essene community, He probably disconnected because he will baptize Gentiles and he'll preach to Gentiles, which the Essene refused to do. And it's what Jesus does when he takes John the Baptist's preaching and he brings it out and cracks open um, Israel so that the wealth of this great nation can be brought to the whole world uh, through his apostles. So a call to repentance to open yourself up to the life of grace. Let's conclude Oro Valley Catholic by talking about how it is we can respond to the preaching of John the Baptist this Advent. Oh, the preaching of John the Baptist. And so in John's gospel, the tax collectors say, what are we to do? The Roman centurions say, what are we to do? And John says to the tax collectors, stop cheating people. And he says to the soldiers, don't bully people. Be happy with your pay. And so let's take our position with all those people gathered around John the Baptist as he preaches to us. What do we do? Well, let's prepare this Advent a straight way for the Lord. First thing you can do is make a good confession this Advent. Don't forget this Monday, December 5, our parish is having its uh, annual Advent penance service. We'll have about 20 priests there. Um, Short lines, short memories, great mercy. 
if you can't make it then, make sure you try to get to confession this Advent. Um, and then the second is uh, do what John the Baptist says. If you have two tunics, give one away. The corporal works of mercy. Think about the corporal works of mercy and how you can do something about them this Advent, uh, frankly, every day of your life. So the corporal works of mercy are feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, shelter the homeless, visit the sick, visit the prisoners, bury the dead, give alms to the poor. You know, there's just so many opportunities that were in Tucson. Support Casa Maria, Pavarello House, ICS, the various second collections that we have. Um, and, and all of that is a participation in the corporal works of mercy. And finally, prayer. Advent is a time of prayer as we start this liturgical year. Uh, and so repentance, the corporal works of mercy, a life of renewed prayer. Maybe think about coming to the devotion to our Mother of Perpetual Help on Tuesday nights at 6.30, Eucharistic Adoration, Marian Devotion, and the opportunity to make a good confession. So there's some possibilities for this for this Advent, which is like a mini Lent. It's a, it's a good way to get ready uh, and to be made into uh, a people fit for the Lord. Um, really like Dr. Bergsman's book, uh, that he has a place for John the Baptist, that he's not just comes out of nowhere, uh, but he comes out of the heart of Israel. Uh, there were so many people of Israel that wanted to make things better, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes, and in the end, it's all kind of wrong-headed. There is one solution to the problem of all of humanity, and that's Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, the true high priest, risen from the dead. That's who we're preparing to celebrate for this Christmas. This has been another edition of Oral Valley Catholic. Don't forget to give me a like.